welcome to tonight's Points of View lecture. It is April 6, 2016, a beautiful day in San Francisco. And I wanted to wish a warm welcome to all of you as well as to our online listeners who are listening via podcast. One little bit of housekeeping before we start. At the close of tonight's lecture, um, everyone is going to exit at the north side. This is um, the right side of the stage as your right side as you're facing the stage. Uh, if you have tickets for tonight's performance and you'd like to come back in, you just show them to the ushers and you come back in. So I'm especially delighted and excited to have this opportunity to speak tonight about a choreographer whose work I've really uh, just fallen completely in love with. And this is Alexei Ratmansky, of course, the choreographer of tonight's ballet, Seven Sonatas. I've always enjoyed the ballets. Here he is working with San Francisco ballet dancers. I've always enjoyed the ballets he did, uh, specifically for San Francisco ballet. He did a Carnival of the Animals, very witty ballet in 2003. Also equally witty, the 2013 from Foreign Lands. But it wasn't until I saw the Shostakovich trilogy. This was an evening of ballets to Shostakovich, an evening of abstract ballets, um, that kind of a light bulb went off for me about him as a choreographer. And at the same time, I was developing a class for San Francisco Ballet on how to do dance analysis, that is, how to watch dance, what to look for. And I began watching recordings of the trilogy over and over and over again. And as I watched it over and over and over again, the more I watched, the more I saw. So I think for me, the first time I see a ballet that really grabs me, that really transports me with my mind, my body, my spirit, um, it's almost like I'm thunderstruck and my, my thinking stops. And I become almost this, just this body of feeling um, maybe experiencing the movement as the dancers are experiencing it. I feel it in my body. Um, and for some people, I think that's, that's enough. That's a wonderful experience to have at the ballet. They don't feel the need to analyze that experience. However, for me, uh, even back when I was dancing, it was always really important to me to understand how this work of art or this ballet, that I, particular ballet that I love so much, how did it have this particular effect on me? <clears throat> so as I watched the trilogy, I began to see that there was such a deliberate construction to this ballet. There were no wasted movements. And the way that Rutmansky, um developed the movement languages allowed him to explore in this incredibly great level of nuance a range of different human emotions. Uh, so suffice to say, I have since become a little bit obsessed. Um, I even recently purchased a series of Ratmatsky Ballet DVDs from Serbia. I'm not really sure if they're legal or not, and I hope no one here is from the FBI. Um, but I'm certainly not alone in my interest and passion for this choreographer. The New York Times called Bratmansky the finest Russian choreographer since George Balanchine. My only regret is that I cannot keep up with him. 
Oh, this is a lovely poster that someone created of his ballets. Um, it's from a blog called The Ballet Bag. Uh, I can't keep up with this man. He creates ballets at an astonishing speed. In 2013 alone, he premiered seven new ballets on three different continents. That's a lot. So tonight what I'd like to do is share a bit of my knowledge, such as it is, and also my enthusiasm. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Rotmansky's career and then where Seven Sonatas fits in. And then we'll do a little bit of looking at some of the choreographic features of this ballet. Now, Ratmansky's story is really tied up with the story of the Soviet Union opening to the West in the late 1980s. Ratmansky graduated from the Bolshoi Ballet School in 1986. And the Bolshoi Ballet at this time had a very uh, set repertoire and very clear style. Uh, ballets such as the company's calling card Spartacus by choreographer Yuri Grigorovich had um, a very heroic, monumental style. The movements were very big, the gestures were big, the feelings were big. And there certainly was nothing wrong with this. Um, I actually really love Spartacus. I think it's an amazing ballet. Um, but the problem was that the repertoire had somewhat stagnated and there, weren't, there wasn't the same degree of experimentation with, say, one-act ballet formats as we had seen in the West. There certainly wasn't the same level of experimentation in terms of pure dance ballets or purely abstract ballets, such as the ballets of George Balanchine. So here we are in Russia in 1986. Some bootleg VHS tapes, some of you might remember what those are, start to trickle into the Soviet Union. And Ratmansky sees them. And he described this in an interview as a kind of aha moment for him. He was watching George Balanchine's Apollo, and he saw for the first time that he didn't have to limit himself to this style of Spartacus. And he, I think probably from that point, start, set out about finding his own choreographic language. Now, when Ramatsky graduated from the Bolshoi Ballet School, he wasn't taken into the company. And I'm sure this was very disappointing for him personally, but it was probably um, very helpful, ultimately, for his development as a choreographer. And he had to go abroad, essentially, and have an international career. He performed first with the Ukrainian National Ballet. This is where he met his wife. He also um, did his first essays in choreography. And then internationally with the Royal Danish Ballet and the Royal Winnipeg Ballet in Canada. So he was exposed to European, American, and also the Bournonville tradition in Denmark. And then what really kind of put him on the map as a choreographer were these ballets he made for the Georgian ballerina, Nina Ananishvili. He won a Golden Mask Award for one of these in 1998. This is a prestigious award given in Russia. And then from there followed some more um, substantive commissions like his 2002 ballet Cinderella for the Marinsky, which some of you may have seen at Zellerbach Hall last October. Now there's really a lovely quote by author Leo Tolstoy, which goes, all great literature is one of two stories, 
a man goes on a journey or a stranger comes to town. And with respect to his native land, Ratmansky has really lived both, both of these stories. He's left his home and he also came back as a stranger and I'll talk about that in just a minute. He told an interviewer, I'm afraid I've lost a little bit the sense of which country I belong to. Nevertheless, as Alistair Macaulay of the New York Times noted, Mr. Rautmansky's abiding subject often seems to be a Russia of the imagination. So, a stranger comes to town. In 2004, Rautmansky returned to Russia to become the artistic director of the Bolshoi. This was not necessarily an enviable assignment. Uh, after he left in 2013, there was a dancer plot, apparently, and the then director, Sergei Filin, had acid thrown in his face. So here comes Ratmansky. He hadn't been accepted into the company. He's been abroad for all these years. He's got lots and lots of new ideas, and he comes back to the Bolshoi Ballet, where people greet him not as um, a returning um, countryman, but really kind of as a stranger. Not everybody, but a pretty large faction. However, he used his directorship to explore a very unlikely genre of ballet. What had landed him the appointment in 2004 was his reconstruction of a Stalin-era ballet from 1935 called The Bright Stream. This was a ballet to Shostakovich music, um, also with choreography by Fyodor Lopukhov, and it was one of the ballets created during this time, which was an attempt to uh, have ballet deal with socialist themes in some way. The ballet at first, the 1935 ballet, was a great success. However, it was, after it was performed in Moscow, it was denounced in Pravda, and um, Shostakovich and Lobukov had their careers severely curtailed and the librettist was sent to the gulag. However, the ballet itself is a very lighthearted comedy set on a collective farm in the Kuban. And while Ratmansky continued as director, he continued with these reconstructions of these 1930s ballets that were made in this era when socialist realism was the official aesthetic doctrine. And some wondered, particularly with Bright Stream, what exactly he was, he was trying to accomplish with these reconstructions. There were four of them. One after he had already left as director. He left in 2008. Now, one thing we can say about these reconstructions, whatever their aim, was is that he is the only choreographer of the post-Soviet era to take on this history and reclaim it as part of the legacy of Russian ballet, whether people like it or not. There are certainly some who thought that these ballets were best left forgotten or that these ballets really had nothing to offer. And of course, he's not um, reconstructing them, he is restaging them, so he's using uh, the existing choreography and then filling in with his own choreography and also um, based on his research. He's quite a dance historian, apparently. One also wonders if recreating these ballets is in some way a way to rethink them. Of one of the ballets, The Flames of Paris, which was apparently Stalin's favorite ballet, 
he changed the libretto quite dramatically, stating, I want to make people see that revolution is a bloody thing. And of course, he returned to um, an exploration of Soviet themes, albeit more abstractly, with the Shostakovich trilogy. I wonder if staging these socialist realist ballets from the 30s was a kind of um, um, breeding ground for some of the ideas uh, that, that came about in that, in that 2000, uh, 2012 production. Now, Seven Sonatas was made in 2009 when Ratmansky had left the Bolshoi and accepted a post as artist in residence at American Ballet Theater, and this is the post that he still holds. Seven Sonatas is a one-act, non-narrative ballet with a small cast of six dancers. It has no complicated sets, so it's definitely something different from the model of the, the multi-act narrative ballet that he was doing at the Bolshoi. That wasn't all that he was doing, I want to be careful to say that, but that was what um, seemed to be most popular at the Bolshoi. Ratmansky choreographed seven sonatas for uh, the small and irregularly shaped stage that it was performed on, Avery Fisher Hall, now David Geffen Hall at Lincoln Center. And this is normally, this is a venue normally used as a concert hall. And I think this is very fitting that it's used as a concert hall because Seven Sonatas is in its definite move away from being a narrative ballet, um, more of an intimate experience or even a dialogue between music and dance. Uh, Seven Sonatas is also quite different for Ratmansky because of the choice of composer. More often, like about 80% of the time, he has chosen Russian composers, either, either past or present. And the ballet has no obvious Russian cultural themes to it. I think what he's doing with this ballet is developing his own take on what I call the abstract yet narratively suggestive ballet. And I'll get into that in just a minute, defining that. And so in this sense, he's kind of giving himself some, a measure of freedom from having to have a clear cultural identification. Now the seven sonatas referred to in the title are by 18th century composer Domenico Scarlatti. Scarlatti, Scarlatti wrote 555 harpsichord sonatas and Ratmansky chose seven for this piece, thus the seven sonatas. Uh, and they're chosen from the early, one from the middle, and then, also, then a few from the late ranges of when Scarlatti was composing them. Uh, most of them were written as piano exercises for the Queen of Spain. She had her own composer, who was Scarlatti. And Scarlatti's sonatas are sometimes called binary sonatas because they are structured in two halves. So unlike the classical sonata, where typically you have three sections, an exposition, a development, and a recapitulation of the theme, the Scarlatti sonatas are in an A-B format. The A and the B sections relate to one another, uh, but this is typically how they're structured. Now, I mentioned the binary sonata form because this ballet is really about intimate relationships between a pair. And that could be 
you know, whether that pair is clearly the couples depicted on stage, how they are relating, um, but also in a broader sense, you can think about the pair of the composer and his patron, the queen, or the pianist on stage and the dancers on stage, or even just the relationship between music and dance itself. Bratmansky told critic Sarah Kaufman that he wanted the dancers to function as if they are the pianist. So it's like they're responsible for the music being born. Um, they're supposed to be creating the music with their bodies. And I wanted to show you the very beginning of, the, of seven sonatas. Um, one caveat, this is footage of American Ballet Theater. Um, seven sonatas premiered here yesterday, so we didn't have San Francisco Ballet footage to show you. But in this, in this first clip, you'll see the pianist on stage playing the opening bars. And then the dancers sort of tumble on stage after this introduction in these incredibly complicated and layered movement phrases until they gather right at the front. So thinking about this relationship between music and dance, one of the images that, that I get from this opening scene um, is that of the pianist's hands. Um, it's almost as though the, the dancers are the, the fingers sort of rushing across this keyboard in these very complicated um, spatial and temporal relationships to one another. So I see the, these fingers just spilling across the keyboard as they go. Now, yes, okay, that's what I wanted to show. Now I wanted to get back to this idea of the abstract yet narratively suggestive ballet. Um, for those of you familiar with the ballet repertory, I think the best example of this is Balanchine's 1934 ballet, Serenade, which is also reportedly Ramonsky's favorite ballet. And in Serenade, you get a lot of uh, evocative images or situations it's not, they're not narrative, there's no actual story, but there's clearly something happening, as for example, one female dancer falls to the ground and a man and another woman come and interact with her. The woman then puts her, the standing woman then puts her hand over the man's eyes and they walk off the stage, leaving the woman who fell on the floor down on the floor. So we don't know exactly what's happening here, but something is happening and it definitely calls forth a kind of response from us. Uh, this is my favorite genre of ballet, I would say, because it leaves open so much interpretation for, it, it leaves it open to the imagination of the viewer. Um, it's a mode of choreography that allows for connotation, not denotation. It's not telling you what you're supposed to be thinking. Perhaps no art form is telling you what you're supposed to be thinking, but it, it leaves so much more open. 
So in seven sonatas, we have these three couples. Uh, and each of the three couples expresses a different aspect or mood of intimate relationships. This is not a new ballet theme. It's um, something that, that has definitely been explored before, for example, in Jerome Robbins' In the Night or Balanchine's Liebeslieder-Walzer. But Ramonsky, what I'd like to bring out for you tonight is the way that Ramonsky um, really kind of goes beyond these two choreographers in, in terms of the subtleties that he's able to bring out about these relationships. And I also wanted to mention that there is a, a little hint of a story in this ballet. By the time we get to the three pas de deux, which form the center of the ballet, there are two opening sonatas and then the three pas de deux and then two closing sonatas. By the time we get to the first pas de deux, there's been a partner switch between two of the couples. The switch is not emphasized. I didn't notice it the first time I watched the ballet. But if you pay attention to it, you'll, you'll see that um, there's a kind of dramatic tension that, that flashes out in various moments as you're watching the ballet, as in, say, the, uh, the final sonata when the woman who lost her partner to another man is running after this couple as they're dancing, reaching out toward them and being restrained by her partner. So let's now look at how Romansky develops this idea, aspects or moods of love across the three different pas de deux. I wanted to mention that one, of, one way you could think about the basic idea or choreographic principle behind the pas de deux or the dance for two um, is this dynamic of capture and release. And this comes from, to us from the Romantic era when the ballerina was typically a sylph or a willy or a ghost or some other kind of supernatural creature. The man would run after her, he would temporarily capt, uh, capture her, and then she would run away. And I think Rotmansky is really playing with the emotional resonance of this idea of capture and release without in any way referencing the Romantic era ballet. He's doing it in a very contemporary way. But just to note that um, the way that people come together and the way that they come apart really tells you a lot. This is one of those things to look for in a pas de deux. How are these two relating to each other? How, like what, how, what steps exactly are they doing when they come together and come apart? So first we'll watch a clip from the second pas de deux. Um, and here you'll see the man trying to capture the woman um, he only succeeds in the end, um, but he's, this might be more like blockade and removal of blockade, um, but you'll see how they are playing this very flirtatious game. Okay, so this is pretty straightforward. She just jumps right over him. They're like little kittens playing together. It's very light, light-hearted, um, not a lot of heavy drama about how these two are coming together and coming apart. They're just playing. Contrast to the first pas de deux, 
which we'll now see. And here, it's um, capture and release starts to feel more like uh, desperate escape and restraint. So two times she runs to these downstage corners and is, is caught by the man. And it's interesting because as you go through the potida, it's not really clear whether the man is trying to restrain her for her own good or whether he is trying to capture her because he doesn't want to lose her. And this is just one example of the, the sort of um, productive ambiguity that Ram Ramatsky is able to bring out in these potida. The final clip, or the final potida that we're going to look at uh, is, is, I think, even a little bit more nuanced. Um, Ratmatsky has the man, the male half of the partnership, uh, start out dancing first without the woman. And this, in some ways, you might think of it as establishing the man as the main character. So that we are perhaps being asked to look at the potida um, through his eyes or identify with him. When the woman appears, as you'll see in a moment, he doesn't see her. She's right behind him. Uh, and it's not until a few moments later that they, they find each other and start dancing together. this potida, the woman just disappears from the stage altogether, kind of with no warning or reason. And she's gone for almost a minute, which is a really long time in, in ballet terms. She does eventually come back. Uh, they start dancing again. And at the very end of the potida, she signals to the man, okay, now it's time for you to catch me. I'm about to run up to you and you're going to catch me. Oops. things about this pas de deux. Um, one is that it's really the woman who is in charge here. She's signaling when she wants the man to capture her. She's in charge of when she disappears, when she appears, and when she decides to couple up, in a sense. And although there is this lighthearted, playful tone to this pas de deux, very similarly to that first clip that we saw, there's also a, a great deal more ambiguity in that 
when she disappears from the stage, the man is really a little anxious looking for her. And we're, not, we're just not sure what happened. We're not sure what she's up to. So this has a, a slightly different dynamic from that first clip that I showed. Uh, one other structural device that I wanted to bring to your attention is the following. Uh, sometimes Ratmansky will have movement phrases that are associated with a particular character or a particular couple later be repeated by the entire ensemble. So it's a little bit like maybe a leitmotif in music being then um, echoed by, by the chorus. And in the clip you're about to see, since most of you haven't seen the ballet, I'm going to tell you which steps are being repeated here. Um, but it'll give you an idea of just how complicated it is to try to analyze this ballet, for one thing, because there's a lot going on. The, the six individuals come together, almost like for a group hug. And then two of the dancers, one couple splits off, and the other four watch them as they perform steps from their original pas de deux. Then all of the dancers come forward toward the center of the stage, and they all perform steps from that one couple's pas de deux together in unison. Finally, after that, everyone separates into individuals. They atomize, and each individual character performs a, a leitmotif, a movement phrase that's associated with them, except for one man who just stands and watches. first couple performing their steps from their pas de deux. Now the whole group is coming and this is just directly taken from that pas de deux and everyone's doing it. And now they're going to separate. dancers perform the steps together of that one couple's pas de deux in unison, it's almost like they're sympathetically reliving the thoughts and feelings of that couple with them. Um, I think of it as uh, quoting and sharing. This device is quoting and sharing. And as the last sonata goes on, there's more and more of this quoting and sharing. Um, it's almost like the um, the final part of Seven Sonatas is really a pastiche of these different movements taken from everyone's pas de deux that the group is performing together. So to me, it's like these are stories that are circulating through the group as one body, um, almost like these are old friends and lovers who can finish each other's sentences or finish each other's movement phrases. Uh, and so it gives you this, this real strong, really strong sense that these are all individuals, but they also form a, a very deeply connected group. Now, Scarlatti biographer Ralph Kirkpatrick also noted in the, in the music, this, in the sonatas themselves, 
a tendency for there to be multiple voices in the music that shift into one another. He stated, one of Scarlatti's favorite melodic devices is the progressive expansion of intervals, which makes one voice suddenly split into two. Generally, one half remains stationary while the other half moves away from it, like a dancer measuring off the space of a stage against the stationary spinning of his partner in the middle. The voices desert their own planes to outline other planes, to hint, as it were, at the existence of other personages, to indicate depth as well as outline of space in a continually shifting perspective. This is a wonderfully choreographic description of Scarlatti's music. And I think this is what, in a sense, Rutmansky is doing here. Um, it's, there's this fluidity of moods, of voices, of identities even, that are shifting from dancer to dancer. Uh, and I think this is one of the reasons why uh, Rotmansky's abstract, abstract yet narratively suggestive ballets can feel much more uh, human, um, in human, for lack of a better word, uh, than say um, some of the Balanchine ballets where you've got a kind of an, an ice princess and her a, a cold, maybe a little slightly unapproachable woman and her somewhat faceless cavalier um, performing their steps. There's much more of this um, human relatedness that I find in his choreography. I do love Balanchine ballets, by the way. So to finish, um, a few thoughts. More than any other choreographer working today, Rutmansky has been trying his hand at a number of very different genres in ballet. Tonight we briefly touched on the socialist realist ballets that he created while at the Bolshoi. Um, we also have a large, large host of abstract ballets such as Seven Sonatas, the Shostakovich trilogy, Concerto DSCH, Russian Seasons, uh, he's also demonstrated interest in the symphonic ballets of Leonid Massine. This is a whole other genre. And finally, if that weren't enough, more recently, Rotmatsky has been painstakingly reconstructing canonical works from ballet's classical heyday. Ballets like Le Corsair, Paquita, Sleeping Beauty, and also Swan Lake, more, most recently Swan Lake. He's been reconstructing these from notated scores that date from roughly around the turn of the century. They're notated in a form called Stepanov notation. So why is he doing this? Well, he told dance critic Marina Harse that staging other choreographers' ballets is the best way to learn the craft of choreography. And I think it's this deliberate anchoring that, that he does in the work of past choreographers and of past dancers that really fuels his inventiveness. So Rotmansky is making ballet look contemporary, not so much by adding things from the outside, although he does do that a little bit, but really from coming, coming from this place um, of being deeply, deeply immersed in its history. So I am somewhat skimming the surface here on this ballet, and of course all of this is my interpretation. You might see other things in it. But if you enjoy doing this kind of analysis, um, I'm going to give a plug for our Seeing Ballet workshop, which is taking place next Saturday, April 16th at 5 p.m. We will be looking at a section of seven sonatas, 
and working together to come up with an interpretation or a reading after understanding a variety of different um, things that we should be looking for. Also, on Saturday, there's going to be a, a wonderful lecture from former New York Times critic Claudia LaRocca. It's entitled Sense and Sensibility, Thoughts on Justin Peck and a New Generation. So definitely something to pay attention to and, and to come to as um, Claudia LaRocca knows Justin Peck and has been following his work for quite some time and he's a new choreographer who's really um, emerging on the scene right now. Thank you.